Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a really special show in store for you this time, ladies and gentlemen. We are talking careers of one of the all-time greats, and I do not use those words lightly. We are talking one of the all-time greats, if not the all-time great, recently passed this past Wednesday at the age of 82. We are talking the life and career of the late great Bruno Sammartino. And joining me once again for this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, my co-host, Crazy Train himself, Mr. Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, don't really look forward to doing this show for the reason we're doing it, but uh, other than that, uh, Bruno is definitely worthy of, of a long episode, uh, and that's a lot coming from a boy who was raised on Southern wrestling. Even I respected and, and thought highly of Bruno San Martino. I think I can put it this way. If you were to make a list of the 50 greatest technical wrestlers of all time, Bruno's probably not going to make that list. I mean, is it fair to say, nope. that? say that? Right. Yeah, he's not, he's not going to get that. <laughs> no, no, no right. way. But what Bruno could do, and it's something key, and I think we discussed it back in our Babyface and Heel 101 volumes, what Bruno could do very well, better than just about anybody, is he could connect with a crowd. And that, I think you can agree, Train, is ultimately the job of a pro wrestler, right? Uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Whether it's you get them to love you or you get them to hate you, your whole job is to get them so emotionally invested they will spend money to come see you beat somebody up or get beat up. And Bruno was one of those guys. People paid in droves to see him beat people up. Right. You don't have to watch too many of his matches to see that. I mean, fans lived vicariously through Bruno Sammartino. Mm-hmm. And we talked last volume about the WWE Hall of Fame and you know theoretical halls of fame and what Hall of Fame worth its weight would have who. And I think it's safe to say any Hall of Fame worth its weight should have Bruno Sammartino in it, right? He, he's on that list I have of you must have this guy in there or it's not really a wrestling Hall of Fame. He is on that list. Right. So we're going to kind of do a chronicle, so to speak, of the life and times and career of Bruno Sammartino. And really, even outside of wrestling, I think Bruno really does have an amazing story. Don't you agree, Train? Yeah, his his life is begging for, uh, uh, you know, 30 for 30 by ESPN or uh, maybe like a bio biopic documentary like the Andre one that was recently released by HBO. He's that. His life is just, I mean, screenwriters can't write what what his life was because real life's always more more fascinating than fiction isn't it right and there has been interest in hollywood uh, about doing a movie about the life of bruno sammartino but he kept turning it down because hollywood wanted to uh, get creative control and edit and adjust some of the realities of bruno's life and bruno does not did not want his life told if it wasn't an accurate depiction well i think that that statement there says a lot about the man doesn't it yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, to go all the way back to the beginning, and uh, I'm not Italian, so my apologies to any Italians or Italian-Americans listening to this because I'm probably going to butcher some names, but he was born Bruno Leopoldo Francesco Sammartino in Pisverato, Abruzzo, Italy, to Alfonso and Emilia Sammartino on October 6, 1935, so he would have been 83 this year had he lived. Mm-hmm. And his father yeah, left... Go ahead. No, I was just saying, my, my dad's brother's a year younger than him, and he's still with us, but not doing well. So, yeah. But Bruno's father left for America 
in around 1939-1940 and I don't know if it was about this time or it was a little bit afterwards this is where it gets ugly because the Nazis took over Italy at the beginning of the war and I, as an amateur World War II historian, em- emphasis on amateur, I'm, I'm not an expert, mm-hmm. but I know that it, Italy was hit very hard uh, by the war. And right. it wasn't like England where they were just getting bombed all the time. The Nazis flat out invaded Italy, as in troops and tanks on the ground and in the streets, correct? Yeah, but it was, uh, it was, a, it was more of a friendly type. You got to remember, Benito Mussolini was buddies with Adolf Hitler, and... Mm-hmm. He was a fascist, you know, the, the, their regime in Italy was as fascist as the regime in, in Germany. They had, they were really the first ones to enter the war by trying to invade Northern Africa. And they just weren't, Mussolini was not as, um, militaristically adept or as charismatic as Adolf Hitler was for his people. And I think Adolf being the megalomaniac he was, kind of basically had to step in and said, let me show you how to do this. And that included friendly, friendly, but not friendly taking over his country. Does that make sense? Right. I mean, I think Mussolini kind of stayed a figurehead, but for all intents and purposes, Nazi Germany, Berlin was running the country, you know, not, not mm-hmm. that I, I guess this probably wouldn't be dissimilar if you are a World War II historian from the Vichy government in France, you know, right. Except or- this was already a fascist government as opposed to, one that was switched to a fascist government when they invaded. Or to kind of give the uh, mob analogy, it's it's like the you have the figurehead head of the mob mm-hmm. that everybody thinks to know they they know, but in mm-hmm. reality there is the actual leader who's kind of pulling the strings from behind. Right, you got the you're the Don, you know, the Godfather, so to speak, and then all the you know all the other you know his lieutenants, you know. Mm-hmm. And they each have their own little section of, of the city that they that they run, whatever. Right. But getting back to Bruno, uh, his mother would take the children. They, they basically had to fled, flee their house and live in the mountains. And Bruno's mother would have to sneak back into the city overnight to get food for the children. Mm-hmm. And it got so bad. Well, first off, two of Bruno's siblings died from sickness, from being in the mountains. So imagine that. Right. Two of your siblings die when you're a child. You don't even get to see them grow up. And one of those nights when his mother would sneak out to get food for the children, she actually got shot in the shoulder. Yep. There is an amazing uh, news piece that I believe is probably, especially now with his recent passing, you could probably YouTube it. It was it was done by I believe it was the CBS affiliate it might have been the NBC affiliate in Pittsburgh which we'll get to Pittsburgh in a little bit uh, where he went back to Italy I mean he went back fairly regularly and it's him walking in the mountains that they they were hiding in and you know uh, it it was I spent a lot of time in camping and backpacking growing up it was some rough terrain you know um, it's amazing to think that a, a woman and a mother like that he even said in this piece that they did on him his he doesn't know if he is a man enough to do what his mother did and that's why he loved and respected his mother so much yeah i believe even after his wrestling career uh, he either lived with or visited his mother every day pretty much until until she passed now, and and, and I, I know this is about bruno but uh it sounds like we're talking about his mom but that amazing woman never never questioned mama bear uh, and what she <laughs> will do for her cubs I, 
Trust me. I've learned that more and more every day as an adult. But you think about that kind of upbringing. Two of your siblings die as children. Your mother is shot, and you yourself are given a short life sentence due to, uh, what was the type of fever? Was it rheumatic fever? I believe it was, or scarlet fever, something like that. It was, it was, it was a, a common illness at that time, you know? Right. And you're, li- and you're living out of the elements, exposed, under, malnourished, obviously, no medical care. Wow. Right, right. It, it, it's the type of illness that I think would be more easily treated now just because of how technology has advanced, but you're talking... Right. You're talking late, you're talking late 30s, early 40s. You're talking before... We didn't even have a polio vaccine yet, did we? No, I don't think so. I don't think I came along until like after... Like mid-50s? Uh, yeah, until after Roosevelt, I think. Yeah, it was after the Korean War. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so... Yikes. <laughs> but flash forward a few years, uh, Bruno finally makes it to the States in 1950, and he weighed like 90 pounds soaking wet with a brick in his pocket and spoke no English. I don't know. In your research, I believe they had like a family member that was already in the States, and that was the whole thing, was just trying to get to him. Isn't that correct? I think it was his father. Uh, they they his were father trying to reunite gone. with his father, yeah. Right, right, right. That's what it was. Yeah, I, I could be wrong on that, but I believe that I was. Think, I, the whole I, I believe I remember reading that at some point. Maybe, maybe it was his father and his uncle, his father's brother. I, I, I just know that there was already family here in the states, and it was trying to get past the German blockades and out of the country to get to the, the get to the states. I mean, you know, a la Sound of Music type thing, mm-hmm. which was also a real story. People don't often know that either. But being so small and not speaking English, that really kind of made him the target of bullies in high school. Oh, yeah. And then one of his friends brought him to a weight room, and Bruno got hooked on weightlifting. I think you know this part of the story. Bruno absolutely loved lifting weights. He might be one of the what, one of the original, uh, to use a more modern gym rats. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and he took to it like a, like a duck to water. I mean, he rapidly put on weight and gained strength. Now, I'm no fitness expert, but I have heard from and of people who find weightlifting a form of stress relief, and I think that's what it was like for Bruno as well. Uh, probably. I I never thoroughly enjoyed weightlifting, and obviously I did it from the time I was 13 or 14 when I started high school football until you know several years ago when I retired from wrestling. So, what, 25 years almost? Um, it can be, even though I didn't like weightlifting sometimes. Uh, I needed to go to the weight room, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And if I know my history correctly, Bruno lifted what the term would say would be heavy, meaning he just packed on a bunch of weight and four or five reps and then, you know, on to the next. Yep. And I think pretty early on, he held either a regional or national world title for a kid his age in like, say, bench press or curls or something like that. I can't remember. Right. I uh, believe, at least according to Wikipedia, he bench-pressed 565 pounds. I think this would have been... That was it. That was it. That's the one. I'm, that's, that's the record I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I think he was in his early 20s. And now, to give you an idea, uh, that legitimately made Bruno one of the strongest men in the world at the time. And yeah, at, that, at that point in time, that's correct. Right. To, to give a comparison, Mark Henry, who WWE's been building as the, the world's strongest man for the last 20 years... He was recorded at benching 585, and he was, right. what, 150 pounds heavier than Bruno was. Right, right. Um, <laughs> exactly. But Bruno Bruno did not have the um, competitive weightlifting of, say, like you said, a Mark Henry or a Ken Patera or a Bill Kazmaier, you know, other wrestlers that transitioned from that world. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think it was a hobby to him. Plus, also the time period, bodybuilding and powerlifting were kind of in their infancy when he was getting into it, you know, and um, that might contribute to us. Had he been born 10 years later, he might have been one of the earlier strongmen you heard about, you know, or, or body or, or, you know, Charles Atlas, that type. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Or he might have been like in the, in the league of uh, maybe not necessarily the body type, but somebody like a Arnold Schwarzenegger or Lou Ferrigno or somebody like that who – right. You know, just just became popular because he was so big, right, right. And of course, uh, we'll talk about it later. He became friends in his late, in, in, you know, as an adult with Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he's older than Arnold, right. But anyway, we'll talk about that when we get to that point in his life. Yeah, well, they they, they share a similar story, but yeah, we'll, we'll sure we'll, we'll we'll get to that when we get to it. But um, so Bruno's in his early twenties and is performing these. Strongman feats. I believe he also became an athlete in football and amateur wrestling as well. Yes, yes. I mean, he he eventually wound up in South Oakland, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh. Which I said we bring up Pittsburgh later. Um, interesting fact about that neighborhood he grew up in. It's the same neighborhood that Dan Marino and Andy Warhol grew up in. Kind of a strange <laughs> neighborhood. Just he's produced celebrities, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Of a diverse nature at that at that at that for that matter. Right, but he with all these strongman feats, uh, he got Bruno got on TV uh, to display some of his feats of strength, and that's when he caught the the eye of the Pittsburgh wrestling promoter. I believe his name was Rudy Miller. Rudy Miller, that's correct. Right, who had an affiliation, I want to say, with Vince Senior. Right, uh, we've brought it up before. The way the territories worked in the territory days was you had the main office, uh, you know, WWWF was New York, uh, uh, Mid Atlantic Championship was Charlotte, Championship Wrestling from Florida was Tampa. But then when you had a large, spread out geographical territory like like the three that I mentioned, you'd have smaller promoters uh, that would run certain cities. They had the connections with uh, the local radio, television, that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's not that dissimilar from the earlier analogy that we used with the organized crime, you know, where you had the Don, then he had his, and a lot of times they were former wrestlers who had bought into the territory. Um, uh, since we're speaking of the WWWF, one of those examples there would be Gorilla Monsoon. You know, he ran a couple of towns for Vince Sr. And then, you know, as the transition went from territory to national, he just stuck around and Vince and Vince helped him out. So Rudy Miller was that guy for Vince's father in the Pittsburgh and, and you know, in the kind of that third of Pennsylvania. You follow what I'm saying? Right, right, exactly. And, and so the, the west the western third of the state, yeah. Right. So Rudy is able to convince Bruno to take a stab at wrestling, and within a, uh, his first year of going pro, Bruno was already wrestling at Madison, Madison Square Garden. Now he wasn't main eventing it like he would a few years later. This was years before winning the title, but he was winning matches in in a few minutes and really kind of getting a push, but for whatever reason, and it's one of those things I think it's kind of disputed between who you listen to, but uh, he gave his notice to Vince Sr. and then left to go to San Francisco to work for Roy Shire. Right, right, which is a, a big jump because you're talking East Coast, West Coast. Right, and I've heard it that... Um, Either he had felt held back by Buddy Rogers 
I don't know why he would think that in his first year, but uh, that's one side of the story. Um, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, he just maybe just didn't want to work New York at the time. But according to legend, Vince Sr. Got, uh, put it around that Bruno no-showed two dates that Bruno didn't even know about. Right. And Vince had the clout, and I believe Bruno wrote in his book that he thinks it was Vince kind of double-crossing him. And again, this is Vince Sr., Vin, you know, the, the Vince McMahon that we know, it's his father. Vincent James McMahon, not Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Right. Um, and this is covered, actually, in the Strongman documentary that's directed by George Romero. Yes, that George Romero. Another another famous Pittsburgher, but I digress. Mm-hmm. But Bruno basically got blackballed from working in the States due to missing these dates. Mm-hmm. And since he couldn't work in the States, uh, Bruno moved up to Toronto to work for Frank Tunney. And right. yes, uh, for any fans of 80s wrestling, that Tunney name sounds familiar. Frank Tunney was the uncle of Jack Tunney, the longtime mm-hmm. figurehead president of WWE. Yeah, the Tunneys were, uh, they ran Toronto and Buffalo were there too because of New York. And when the territories died, that was one of the first ones that Vince absorbed. Uh, they had a working deal for a while with the Crockett's. Uh, from a geographical standpoint, it made more sense for him to be in bed with Vince than it did the Crockett's because they were already abutting on his territory. You know, the Crockett's, they were what, four or five states in between Buffalo and, and their northernmost reach of D.C., Baltimore? Mm-hmm. So, right. Yeah. That's a, that's a long way. Yeah. <laughs> so this means that Bruno's first big break was in Canada, in, in Toronto. And he was there for probably a year or two, a ballpark figure. Just became a huge star there, and my understanding is he appreciated the Tunnies so much that when he wasn't working the garden, he would take a couple days out of the month and work for the Tunnies in Toronto, just you know, kind of as a thank you. Right, and and there are some later in his career. That's not the first time he would do that. He would step step away. He would still be with Vince Senior. But he would do things for other guys he liked or respected. But we'll get to that later on because that comes up later in his career. But eventually he made back up with Vince Sr. and Tootsmont, and the ban was lifted. And this is also covered in that Strongman documentary. If I can find a legal copy of it, whether it's DVD or VHS or whatever, folks, if you can find it, definitely watch it. It's, it's a series called The Winners, which was a series of sports documentaries in the 70s. And like I said, this is called Strongman, the Bruno Sammartino story directed by George Romero. Uh, it, and it, it is completely kayfabed, but it's done in a documentary way where it, it's totally convincing. But anyway, uh, whether it was a change of heart or whether Buddy Rogers was disappointing as a draw is, is up for debate. Uh, it, again, it's one of those things that's been 50-some years. Um, the, the, the truth is probably somewhere in between. But Bruno mm-hmm. was bought, brought back. Uh, and infamously defeated Buddy Rogers for the WWF title on May 17th, 1963, in 48 seconds. You want to know the historical reason behind all that? Yes, I think we're on the same page, but but go ahead. Well, it's, it's just the story I've heard from old-timers and from the dirt sheets. Is Essentially, at that point, Vince McMahon Sr., so we're talking 63, had left the NWA because there was, as normal, back six politics, and they wanted to put the belt back on Luthez. Luthez was never a draw in New York for whatever right. reason. Luthez was a draw everywhere else. Huge right. draw. Right, right. Uh, I, I believe but, we covered this in our volume about uh, the formation of Capital Wrestling. 
probably, but so I'll do the abbreviated. Regardless, he with he withdrew and gave Buddy Rogers because Buddy was a huge draw in the Northeast. That territory was always more about, as we see today, with them being the one that won the whole territorial war, more about the entertainment side than they were wrestling, you know. And and Buddy was a flamboyant over the top. Soon after this happened, Buddy had a massive heart attack, and so they had to get the belt off of him. And the reason the match was so quick, and I mean, it was a bear hug is what Bruno beat him with. He tapped him out with a simple move like a bear hug. Well, simply because Buddy Rogers physically couldn't do anything else. It's amazing in his condition. He was able even to you know, strut down to the ring and get in the ring with Bruno and do what he did. So, you know, anyway, was that what you were going to bring up? Right, right. That it was a heart attack and that's why the match was so brief. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It wasn't because they thought Buddy Rogers had lost his drawing power in the Northeast. I mean, for goodness sakes, they left the NWA because they thought he, had, he was a bigger draw than, than anybody else the NWA wanted to put the belt on. So there you go. So Bruno squashes Buddy in 48 seconds to become the second ever WWF champion in May of 1963. Now, this is something, as kind of a, a pop culture fan and as a music fan, I want to kind of put this into perspective as far as pop culture goes. Mm-hmm. Bruno won the title in the summer of 1963. Mm-hmm. This is when popular music was still in the fading days of doo-wop. And mm-hmm. this was pre-Beatlemania. So through Beatlemania, the British invasion, the psychedelic rock era, the hippie movement, Woodstock, all the way into the early 70s when bands like Led Zeppelin, Rod Stewart, and Black Sabbath were all in the charts. Right. Bruno was the world champion throughout all of that. Yep. A pretty significant chunk of, of our pop culture history. Right, absolutely. And another way to put it into perspective is the number one song in 1963 was Surfing USA by the Beach Boys. Right. They were probably the only American band other than guitar rock that was, you know, California surf guitar rock that was being made that was still rock and roll at that point. Right. I mean, think about it. At that point, Elvis was Army. Chuck Berry had his legal issues. Buddy was dead. Little Richard had left and joined the ministry. Rock and roll was dead. It looked like it was the fad that people said it was going to be, you know? (laughs) Right. And fast forwarding to 1971, the number one song of 1971 was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. Big difference. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Both great songs, but certainly completely different. Both heavily dependent upon male vocalization and harmonization, but (laughs) other than that. (laughs) So in 1971, Bruno basically just got tired of the schedule. Hold hold on before you go on to that. Sure. I want to talk about something. Think about this. Sixty three, he becomes the world champion for Vince Senior. He'd only been in the business like two and a half, three years. Right. I, you know, I, I don't think that that that's unheard of. I mean, look at Bill Goldberg. Look at you know The Rock. There's a few other stars uh, that that fans of more modern wrestling will know. Big Show. That was yeah, Big Show. They're very very unusual. At that time period, if you look at his contemporaries from the NWA side in that time period, it was guys like Pat O'Connor. It was guys like Dory Funk Jr. It was guys like Harley Race, guys that were at at the minimum, what, 10 year veterans when they when they got their first title run. Some of them longer than that. Yeah. Or uh, I don't think he was ever officially recognized as champion, but somebody like uh, Edward Carpentier, if I said that name right. Carpentier. Yes. But yeah, so these guys were, I mean, and, and, and 
quite frankly, it's still kind of that way today. You have those rare blips, but usually you don't get a world title run uh, unless you are, especially back then, even though they weren't an NWA territory anymore, it's still a big territory. You're going to Boston, you're going to Philly, Pittsburgh. Uh, they were they were going. They didn't have Crockett didn't have DC at the time. That was a capital territory, so it was a big spread out territory. You needed that experience to be able to main event big houses like that. And he's doing it two and a half years into his career. That's that's wow, right? You know, I mean that that's amazing. And and as far as going all the way to seventy one. It'll never be duplicated. That 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 will never see a, a champion that long running again. But to be a guy who could be the biggest star, the top dog in the biggest media market in the country for that long—that's that's mind blowing, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, uh, I got ahead of myself, jumping ahead to 1971. Uh, what were some of the major programs that that Bruno worked? I mean, I know. He had, <laughs> you know, I'm not that familiar as with his first run as I am his second run, mostly because what we have on tape versus what we don't, you know, right? Um, more of his second run in the seventies. But I do know in that time period, he now granted Madison square garden, they only ran it once a month, sometimes twice. Okay. Mm-hmm. He holds a record in that first run, 188 straight sellouts with him on top of the garden. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Hogan never did that. So if, no, Hogan did. No one ever did it. So if you and if you think about it, so if they run it, let's say they run it, you know, once a month, that's twelve, maybe two more. So four, they're only doing like fourteen to fifteen dates a year, calendar year. So how many years consecutive is that? Or that he's selling it out? I mean, that seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't. And this is no disrespect. I don't think Lawler ever sold out Memphis that many times. Do you? And that's a much smaller venue. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we know how hot Memphis was, you know, uh, flair never sold out Greensboro that many times in a row. You know, I mean, I'm not saying Lawler and flair didn't sell out the big, ter- the big stadiums or coliseums in their territory. They did, but consecutively like that. Wow. It was one of those things. And maybe we should have seen the writing on the wall. It was one of those things they didn't even have to put an opponent up there. They could literally just put on the marquee tonight, WWWF Wrestling, colon, Bruno San Martino, and the tickets would sell. That's amazing. Star power. Right. And and I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Uh, this And Bruno is a perfect example of this. What current wrestling has lost is the WWE has become the Harlem Globetrotters. It's become the circus. It's something that comes to your town once or twice a year. And none of the stars sell it. When wrestling is its hottest is when there's an individual or a couple of individual stars that connect, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, with the fan base that will pay money. Stars are what make wrestling big and popular mainstream, not just wrestling. Think about it. The last time we had a boom period in wrestling, the Attitude Era, you had Goldberg, you had Stone Cold Steve Austin, you had The Rock. That's what sold, not wrestling. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I'm looking over a list of some of San Martino's opponents at ProFightDB.com, and uh, through a good chunk of the 60s, there were several matches between Bruno and the aforementioned Gorilla Monsoon for the WWF World Heavyweight title. Gorilla Gorilla was a top heel in the territory at the time. And I don't know if, I think this might have been his 70s run, but 
Bill Watts. Yes, that Bill Watts, Cowboy Bill Watts, you know, who later famously run Mid-South. He had a big run with Bruno, I think, at the towards the end of that run, the late 60s. Um, and that's kind of where Bill, by his own admission, working Bruno and 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 having that that you know that marquee angle affected him and, and how he ran his own territory later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 60s run, I'm you know it's New York. Vince had access to every top heel uh, in in the world at that point. So yeah, Gorilla would be one. Uh, I would think probably Don Leo Jonathan, who was Andre before Andre, probably was one of the guys. Oh, Killer Kowalski. He had he had a long running feud with Killer Kowalski. Yes, yes, several several years. Uh, you know who was also another top heel in that territory. Um, those are just a couple of the people I can think of from the '60s. Well, I, I know one of the biggest uh, feuds he had in that first run was George the Animal Steel. Um, and that's an interesting story, and it's kind of a, 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 a it's as much a Bruno story as it is a George Steele story. Uh, George was a a young father and fo- high school football coach uh, who was only wrestling in the summers when he wasn't working to make extra money. And uh, Bruno was going around working, like we said earlier, a few spot shows here and there for other promoters he respected. Well, one of the ones he respected was Eddie Farhat, the, the original Sheik, you know Sab- Sabu's uncle, and. Um, one summer he saw George and he worked a program with him there and he was really impressed. So when he went back to New York, he uh, said, yeah, you need to bring this guy in. And when they contacted him, George didn't want to do it. It was just a part-time gig for him. Bruno's the one that convinced George to move to New York and take up wrestling full time. And then they did it again in New York, what they had done the summer before in Detroit did monster numbers. So, you know, and, and, and my understanding Bruno was that kind of guy in the business. If he saw potential in somebody, uh, he would he would put a good word in for them. Uh, he was very encouraging of uh, and he really really. I've brought this up about Chief Wahoo McDaniel before. Uh, he was but Bruno was a man's man, and he was very um, vocal, shall we say, when guy when promoters did not take care of the underneath talent that bothered him, and he had enough stroke to say, "You're going to fix this, or I'm not going to wrestle." And we've just discussed about how big a draw he was that that had a lot of impact on a promoter, you know, um, mm-hmm. James J. Dillon. Yes. You know, J.J. J. Dillon of the four horsemen fame uh, has told a story on his podcast when he first broke in as a referee. Uh, and, and they were you gotta understand they were kayfabe and even athletic commissions back then. There was one of the states that they ran the, the athletic commission always assigned the referee. But they had a lot of leeway with who else they could get involved. And they essentially had uh, J.J. go in uh, at their request on top of the state assigned one because they needed a ref bump. And so J.J. went in and did it, and Bruno was talking to him afterwards and uh, asked him what he made. J.J. told him, and he said, oh, really? Because I'll see about that. And the next time J.J. worked, he went up from like $100 that uh, night to like 250 so he got like $150 extra for the night. And when he saw Bruno again a couple weeks later, Bruno said, well, well how's your paychecks now? And he told me, are you happy with that or would you like more? And Jay just said, no, that's fine. So there's another example of Bruno in that era just taking care of the small guys, which was, I can tell you from being a, a wrestler myself, that is a wonderful trait when you have stroke like Bruno had, but not very common. 
It's a very, very selfish business. So I think that speaks volumes to who the man was, you know? Absolutely. I think it definitely speaks for his character. But uh, I'm going through a list here at ProFightDB.com of some of the opponents that Bruno had over the years in the 60s. Uh, we had the aforementioned Gorilla Monsoon, uh, guys like Freddie Blassie, and uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but uh, uh, Baron Mikkel Cicluna? Mikkel Cicluna. Mikkel Cicluna, okay. Who's also a Hall of Famer. Most of our fans and listeners would know him in the waning part of his career where he was enhancement talent for Vince Jr. But in his heyday, he was a star. But moving forward to uh, January of 1971, Bruno had basically been getting tired of the road because he was home literally two, maybe three nights a month. And that was like every other Sunday or something of that effect. So, And of course, he was, he was married and had probably two of his three sons by this point, I would think. Yeah, I believe so. And he started lobbying to Vince to drop the title because he just wanted to go home for a while. You know, right. it, it wasn't that he wasn't enjoying the money or anything like that. He was just tired and wanted to go home. Burned out. Just burned out. It happens. Yeah, and that brings us to the infamous match in Madison Square Garden in 1971, where Ivan Koloff dropped the knee off the second turnbuckle and cleanly pinned the great Bruno Sammartino. And as Lou Albano would put it, it's like you could hear a pin drop in the building because people were just so stunned that Bruno lost, and Bruno himself had said he thought that maybe the knee drop did something to his hearing and that he went deaf because there was such silence in the building. Now, that video is available on YouTube. It's a, it's a still cam shot. I don't know if it was a fan camera or, or what, but right. it's just basically a still camera shot. It's got some terrible commentary, quite frankly. So you probably just want to watch it with the sound turned off. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Train, you've actually seen... I don't know if it was the same video I'm thinking of, but you actually saw that video at Ivan Koloff's house, right? That's correct, and it was a tape he had that had no commentary on it, so he probably got it from the office. And it was an unedited, you know, uncut version. Uh, and it, well, you're right, it's from a bad angle. So if you think about it, 188, we just said 188 straight sellouts of Rep Mass and Square Garden, even the, even the most uh, virile and hardy of men would get tired after a while. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a long, long run. On top. Right, absolutely. So uh, he did make some sporadic wrestling appearances during that early 70s uh, dry period, right? Right, that's what I was referring to earlier in the episode where he would go and work for other people. He would run some shows and, and, and help promoters in, in Pittsburgh. And, and he was doing that at the tail end of his first run. And he would, he would bring in guys he liked. That, that's part of how J.J. Dillon got his break was, you know, Bruno liked him and he was – he was he was working, I believe, the Maritimes at the time, you know, Nova Scotia, how you know that area, that part of Canada, and would have JJ come in. He would go and work for Eddie Farhat in Detroit. He would work for he was really close to uh, um, Dick the Bruiser, and would work Indianapolis sporadically. Of course, we discussed the WWA and our and our our tribute to Bobby the Brain Heenan. So there were guys that he respected. He would go to Japan on on rare occasions because uh, I believe he worked for. Baba, I believe. Maybe it was Anoki, but he he he, he liked it was Japan. Baba. It was Baba, okay. He respected Baba. So, you know, it was sporadic, but he would do and he he was at that point, think about it, you've been just had this seven, eight year run as the WWF champion. You have all the star power in the world. You can dictate your booking schedule. That's unheard of, especially in that era in wrestling, and he had it. He could he had he had, you know, he'd saved his money. 
He paid his taxes. He was still living in Pittsburgh. So, you know, it wasn't like living in New York City for cost. And just we'll go out. Doesn't every man dream of being able to do something like that? Work when you want to and don't have to worry about your bills getting paid because you got enough money in the bank. That to me is the epitome of the American dream. Being able mm-hmm. to do what you want, when you want, and how for want. how much you want. Exactly. Exactly. And you're only working for your friends and people you respect. You know, I, I, I don't have any verification of this, but I would think that Bruno probably had offers from other territories and he just said, no, I don't want to. I don't know you. I don't respect you or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to leave my home and travel that far, even though he would go to Japan. Um, and, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead. Quite frankly, a large percentage of Bruno's drawing power in the Northeast was his backstory that we mentioned. You know, this is a time when ethnic neighborhoods were still very, very prevalent in New York City. And of course, he first caught on with the Italian Americans. But over time on that first run, all the ethnic saw him as their, you know, they could relate to him. You know, they, they, here's, here's the guy who, you know, escaped Nazis in Italy and, and came here and became, a, and he's one of us, you know. And so that made him a massively over baby face. And like I said, I don't want to speak ill of the dead. I don't know if that translates in other regions of the country, especially here in the South, you know. So that could have been part of the reason Bruno said no, too, because he might have just known that, that that was the case. And and we've brought up many times before the, the Northeast, we, I just brought up earlier, was much more of an entertainment based than it was other places. It was very much an athletic competition. That wasn't Bruno's style. I mean, if we said he's not, he was technically was not one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, but he was a big, strong, barrel-chested guy. Uh, you know that these fans could get behind. I just, and I was, I'm not knocking him. I just don't think Bruno would have been second or third match here in the Carolinas or Georgia or Florida or Texas. He just would have been. He his style of wrestling worked in the areas he worked, like Detroit, like Indianapolis. You know, you know, I, I, that's not a. Do you, am I knocking him by saying that? No, no, not at all. It's just a commentary on again how territories were at the time, and right, right. The northern north northeastern territories they kind of had more of the show. You know, the the circus right. show or the the dog and pony show would have you rather than right. in the south where it was much more of a mat based in ring product. Right. And I think once again, though, I, I, I'm not saying it out of district. Actually, I'm saying it as an out of, out of respect for him that he was smart enough to know that. And had enough clout because of his hard work for years to say, I don't have to go there. I could just, you know, he was smart enough to go. Why do I want to go there? Probably not be, get the reception I would get like I've gotten for years. And I don't need to, I got the money. So I actually respect him for that. Don't disrespect him for it. And really, when we're talking his second run and reclaiming the title in early 1973, um, the argument could be made that his second run was probably more successful than his first run. He was making more money, I believe, at that time during his second run. He was considered one of, if not the highest paid athlete in all of sports. Yes. And then, you know, and of course, like, like, we, like we brought up just a second ago, you know, it was also times had changed. Money was bigger. Um, and I don't know if it was a bigger run, um, money would say yes, but once again, a lot of that stuff from his first run is just not available. It was, it was taped over. So what we have as fans to see is mostly from his second run, you know, um, and, and 
oh my goodness, the legendary feuds he had in the second round were some of my favorite in all of wrestling. Right. Uh, again, a lot of these are Hall of Fame names. Uh, you're talking names like, well, he had rematches with, with Ivan Koloff, uh, Nikolai Volkov, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen. The Stan Hansen feud is one of my favorite of all time because Stan Hansen legitimately broke Bruno's neck. They, they, the kayfabe reason was it was the lariat, and that's what the history books will say. What really happened was Stan was green, and, and he, he botched a, a body slam spot and slammed him on the back of his neck instead of flat back. Once again, to speak to the kind of man Bruno was, he had no ill will against Stan whatsoever. He realized it was a risk you take when you go into the ring, uh, that Stan was green. He saw that they were going somewhere because Stan was a big guy that the, the crowd could believe could be a threat to Bruno. And from his hospital bed, he told Stan, don't worry about it, kid. I'm going to heal up from this. And when we come back, when I come back, we're going to do monster numbers, mm -hmm. you know? So he tells Stan that in private, but then has the aftermags come to his hospital and do a photo shoot of him in, in this traction talking about, I will get better and get my revenge. That right there is the textbook of how you're supposed to handle it when an accident happens in the ring. I absolutely cannot stand the, the, the wrestlers today, you know, kissing each other's butt on social media. Thanks for the great match, bro. That's the stuff you keep behind the curtain. That's why you can't draw. That's why you can't draw, people, because everybody knows it's a joke. You don't take it seriously. Bruno and Stan, took, you say, I'm sorry in private. You heal and baby face in public. That's exactly what Stan and Bruno did. And they did monster numbers because of it. Right. Monster numbers. Because Bruno was smart enough to know that this kid now has a million-dollar angle. You know, right. he, he broke the superstar's neck. Right. I mean, I've said it before. We don't talk current wrestling. We talk classic wrestling. But the whole kerfluffle in the, in the recent month with uh, Eddie, Eddie, as, as it was Eddie Edwards that got hurt by, uh, what's his name, in, in Impact? Oh, right, who it was, was uh, Sammy Callahan with a, a baseball bat to the eye. It was it was a or, right. or bone fracture, I believe. To Sammy's, I don't want to go off on a, on a on a tangent, but to Sammy's, you know, credit, he's healing in public. Okay, at least he's doing that. Well, most of them don't do that, and I, I I can guarantee you, I don't know Sammy Callahan in private. He's told he's told Eddie Edwards, I am so sorry, man. I am so sorry. I did not mean to break your eye your eye socket. That should be the template. The Bruno Stan situation is the template for how you handle when a real injury comes out of a wrestling, a worked wrestling match. How Bruno handled it, how Stan handled it, how Vince handled it. Anybody out there thinking about booking shows? Look into that because somebody might get hurt in one of your shows. Just saying. And when when Bruno came back, it became a cage match, right? Yes, yes, yes. Because that was back when cage matches actually met, meant something. You know, the cage match for us fans was, oh, it's about ready to get real because that's where it went. Every every big time money angle led to a cage match. Think about it. You could nobody could get in. Nobody could get out. There was no DQ. You knew there was going to be blood, you know, to quote <laughs> Europe from 19 to 1980s. It's the final countdown. It's it. That's it. It's done. Now cage matches are the third match on a raw because, well, we need to pop the, the, the quarter hour ratings. Makes no sense. I'm guessing that's one of your favorite angles, too, of all time, is the stand. Yeah, yeah. With. I mean, uh, I, th I think I saw the match once years ago. It's a hoss fight. It's a, it's a hoss fight. <laughs> you know, Bruno's whole run, I mean, even his second run, is what I would call the generation uh, behind me, the generation ahead of me. Right. 
something worth mentioning, because we brought up Nikolai Volkov. I don't know if it's any sort of record, uh, but it's something worth mentioning that Nikolai Volkov had world title shots against Bruno, Bob Backlund, and Hogan. Hmm. You know, think about that for a minute. That That's impressive for Nikolai, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because most of us remember him as the uh, Foreign Legion, you know, the, the tag team partner of Iron Sheik. Right. Well, one of my other favorite opponents he had, and this was towards the end of this run, he had, the second run he had in the 70s, and I've talked about it before on our Heel 101, it is one of my five favorite angles of all time, and that is the Larry Zabisco-Bruno San Martino feud. Right. It is the one that Larry himself will tell you made him a star. And to me, one of the keys to being an icon or a legend in the business is when you're a top guy saying, I made somebody else, like Flair made Sting, you know, like Andre made Hogan. Well, Bruno made Larry Sabisco. And that's not the only one, but that was, you know, if you want a fascinating, I don't, I won't, I won't you know, bore our listeners with the details. If you want a fascinating look at how much that meant to Larry and all the details, Go back and watch Larry's induction into the Hall of Fame. He tells that story quite well of how he broke into the business by just being the biggest Bruno San Martino mark in the world and literally right. following the man around until he finally said, okay, kid, we're going to get you trained, you know? Right. I found it fascinating that uh, – are you familiar with Table for Three, one of the original shows that they have on the WWE Network? I've seen a few episodes here and there. I didn't see the one that he was on. It was him, uh, Randy Orton, and I forget who the third person was. Uh, yeah, I cannot remember. Uh, but Larry tells the story essentially of, you know, once again, in a reform, how much Bruno meant to him and brought up the fact his whole goal when he entered the wrestling business was to become the next Bruno San Martino. He wanted to be the, the, the conquering hero babyface, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> so he, he was a heel for his whole career, and he didn't get that adulation until after he'd retired and how over he got as the announcer during the NWO invasion angle. You know how they would chant, the crowd would chant for Larry, and he he made the analogy. It took me twenty years to become Bruno, or twenty five years to become Bruno, but to do it to, to get there, I had to I had to beat my hero up first, you know, and then twenty five years later, finally I'm accepted. I don't think I said I don't think Larry's the only guy Bruno put on the map. I, I mentioned Bill Watts earlier. Bill Watts, you know, talked about how much his his run with Bruno uh, affected him and 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 his booking later on and. I think both of us have spoken highly enough about Bill Watts' booking to let you know what we think about it. Well, this man's saying that Bruno had a major impact on that. So there you go, right? Right. And we're, we're both feel really stupid right now because the third guy in that table of th- for three was somebody named Ric Flair. That's, it, was, it was generations what it was called. It was like three generations of world champions. Yeah, yeah. You know, I remember that, I remember that one especially because Randy Orton, it was, he wasn't in awe. It was just like, oh, I, 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 I knew you guys when I was a kid because my dad was friends with both of you guys because you're from my dad's generation. <laughs> right. So in April of 1977, Bruno loses the title to superstar Billy Graham. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here, you know, mm-hmm. uh, since we're talking wrestling terms, though. Uh, just like the two guys that beat Bruno, you know, Ivan Koloff, and who beat Pedro, uh, Stan Stasiak. Stan the man, yep. Yeah, uh, those were perfect examples of transitional champions, and that is that is correct. And I think Superstar was also a perfect example of a transitional champion. Because correct me if I'm wrong, Vince Senior had it in the back of his mind that somewhere down the road, Bob Backlund is going to beat oh Superstar. 
he had it more than down back 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 the back of his mind. He had already verbally promised Bob Backlund he was going to be his champion. Uh, there were a lot of guys that um, <clears throat> Vince was looking since Senior was looking for to replace Bruno because Bruno realized he was getting at the end of his run. And he wanted it's it, it's always was a, a babyface territory. We've discussed that before. And Bruno really started that where every other territory, your top guy was a heel and you had a, a, a cachet of babyfaces, a lot of them white meat babyfaces trying to, to, to slay that dragon. Well, that's that was the, the exact opposite formula of what Bruno ran, which was bring in a guy as a dragon. And, you know, first and with that Italian thing, uh, Dominic Danucci and Tony Parisi were. Uh, kayfabe cousins to Bruno, and that's how I always. That was the formula. The new big monster heel would show up, and he beat he'd beat Tony Parisi, and then the net. Then later on, this is as this would be going on in the undercard as Bruno was finishing up an angle with whoever the current dragon was, and then the next guy. Well, well, Tony wasn't enough, so here comes Dominic Danucci, who of course trained Shane Douglas and and uh, Mick Foley, and was a a tag team champion for Vince. Well, then they'd beat they'd beat Dominic. So now, now finally, this guy might be a threat to Bruno. That's how the fans perceived it. You follow what I'm saying? That was right. the formula. And and then and then invariably you would put Bruno in jeopardy, and you know that would go around. Then it would blow off in Madison Square Garden with Bruno finally slaying the dragon. So back to Backlund, that's exactly what he wanted. He wanted another baby face. And Vince had gone around and talked to several people. I mean, I think. Uh, Chris Nelson brought it up that Steve Kern was somebody that Eddie Graham had suggested to Vince Sr. to be the guy, you know. But Vince was set on Backlund and promised Backlund, you're going to be my champion. But he wasn't ready. And Bruno was at the end of his run, so Billy, Billy Graham was meant to be the transitional champion. It just lasted a lot longer because, I mean, if you think about it, Ivan was only the champ for like, what, three weeks? Stan was only the champ for like two weeks? So they were truly transitional. Superstar Billy Graham had the title for almost a year. And then even after, like I said, we don't want to get off on tangent, we're talking about Bruno, but even after he dropped the belt to, to Bob Backlund, that was when Dusty came up there and would run the and ran that program with bull rope matches with Billy Graham because Bob still wasn't quite the draw Bruno was. So they'd had to have some star power there to to kind of bolster up. You know, That would be the semi-main would be Dusty and Billy with Bob on top. And then once the fans had accepted it, in other words, Billy and Dusty got the people in the building to be exposed to Bob as champion. And then after enough of that, do you follow what I'm saying there? Right. Yes. So that was that was exactly what happened. But Bruno was getting burned. His boys were getting older. Um, you know, you see that a lot in wrestling. You saw it with Ole Anderson in the 80s. These guys, kids start getting older and they're playing high school sports. They've got their money saved. They're smart. They want to come off the road, you know. And And Bruno was no spring chicken at this point. And though Bruno didn't take a lot of bumps, you know, nearly 20 years of bumps will take its toll. You know, <laughs> it, right. it, it was, for God's sakes, we just said he had his neck legitimately broken in his career. So it wasn't like Bruno was didn't get hurt, you know. Right. Uh, April of 1977, that would have made Bruno 41 going on 42. Right. Uh, and, you know, he just he just knew his his time was short. So he dropped the title to Billy Graham. He still made some right. sporadic wrestling appearances uh going into the 80s mm-hmm. i think i think there's a couple times he teamed with baba in japan 1980 was the aforementioned larry Zabisco feud right some of it some of it was also uh his oldest boy david was trying to make it the business and so he was 
he would show up a lot to help his son. He would tag with David, not dissimilar from like Vern and Greg Gagne in the Minneapolis territory, you know. Um, uh, and and also, I, I believe, and I could be misspeaking here, some of the the beef that he had with Vince McMahon came over David and his. Or at least that was the start of it. There were a lot of other issues too, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But we're talking Vincent K. McMahon here, right? Right. By this point, yeah, Vincent J- Vince Jr. had taken over. Just didn't feel like he treated and 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 all due respect to David San Martino, he was not as charismatic as his father. Probably better looking. He had a great body, but he had his dad's technical skill, but which was or lack thereof, and but none of his charisma. That's not a good. That's not a good good formula. You know what I'm saying? Right. But but with Bruno being his dad, it immediately made David like upper mid card guy. Because we're talking early '80s, there was. I mean, to this day, to this day, if you go to New York and you find that one or two real, real old timers sitting in the crowd at a, at a wrestling show, I'm talking like our parents' age in their 70s, right? They will speak glowingly of how the big a man Bruno. That's their favorite wrestler. You know, these these kids are okay, but they're not Bruno. You know, mm-hmm. what does that say? Forty years later, right? <laughs> right. So shortly after. The program with Zabisco, Bruno, I get, I don't know if he announced it, but he effectively retired for a few right. years. And, and I remember some of my earliest watching of Vince's television, it would be around this time, uh, that's when he kind of transitioned into being like a color uh, commentator for Vince McMahon Jr., right? Correct. And I think he may have been on Tuesday Night Titans at some point, but mm-hmm. I remember him doing color commentary on some of the really old tapes. Uh, yep. Back when I used to go to these things called video stores and uh, <laughs> rent videotapes. Yeah. It, it, it was kind of like a Netflix, but in you know physical form. <laughs> right. And so if you think about it, I mean, Vince's three color commentators at that point were Lord Alfred Hayes, Bruno San Martino, and Gorilla Monsoon. So he had three former wrestlers, which, in my opinion, always make the best color commentators. Just saying. They can give you that in-ring perspective, you know, and you can buy it. You can believe it because, oh, we know they've been there. So for about three years, uh, Bruno pretty much stayed at home. Again, made some sporadic appearances, like you know, going to Japan or maybe still went up to mm-hmm. Toronto. But then Vince Jr. called him, saying he wants him to wrestle again. And I was watching the special on the WWE Network called uh, San Martino, the, the Legend Lives. And yes. the way Bruno put it is he was kind of self-conscious about it. Uh, my words, not his. But mm-hmm. what he said was he felt he was ripping off the people because they weren't getting the old Bruno Sammartino. They were getting an old Bruno Sammartino. Right. Right. Uh, more of that, like we talked about when his first, when he first stepped away in the early seventies, man was very self-aware of what his image was. And some could, could perceive that as, Oh, he was just egotistical. I don't think he's egotistical. I think he was something that's rare in the wrestling business Honest self-assessment, you know, and, and having his finger on the pulse of what the current wrestling fans want you know and i think bruno was smart enough to understand what he was doing in 65 66 is not what the fans want to see in 1983 84 you know what i'm saying times had changed yeah i remember he had uh, a couple of feuds in there you know he, he would be an announcer one of the most memorable ones to me because of course it involves one of my favorite wrestlers of all time uh, randy savage and this was when savage was intercontinental title and I think Savage was gloating over injuring somebody. I forget who it was. And Bruno had that infamous quote, 
you piece of slime, and then he smacks <laughs> Savage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that now. Yes, yes. It wasn't long after that, though. I think that Bruno, not only was he burned out in wrestling, I, I mean, it's pretty well documented. Bruno and Vincent Kennedy McMahon did not get along. He did not like the entertainment uh, aspects that he was bringing in. Um, I think he's been spoken out on record before he was not a big fan of Hulk Hogan <laughs> as champion. Um, so there was definitely a parting of the ways around this time. You know, it was philosophical differences. I think that'd be the politically correct term to use. And later on, um, Bruno would become extremely outspoken about steroid use and abuse in that era, you know, in, in the early to mid nineties. I'm sure you've heard some of his interviews about that. Haven't you? Absolutely. Because Bruno, was very proud and animate about the fact that he did not take any steroids during any of his career. He was naturally that strong and just worked out that hard. And that, you know, that's where we talked, we talked earlier. That's how Arnold Schwarzenegger and him became friends. You know, Arnold, as he was rising in the bodybuilding world, well, Bruno was already ensconced as the champion, uh, a wrestling champion. I think there was just a mutual respect there. They would see each other in the gym and, they they just respect each other's work ethic in the gym and their similar backgrounds of we said you know the, the American you know the, the European foreigner coming over here and making it good um yeah I, I think uh, Arnold always spoke highly of Bruno when Arnold was inducted into the WWE's celebrity wing of the Hall of Fame he spoke highly of Bruno San Martino um I can think of a lot of wrestlers that did that I Jake Roberts brought him up when he was inducted of course we talked about Larry Zbysko and. I, I know that at that period we're talking about when he had the falling out, he had that cup of coffee run in WCW as an announcer slash figurehead. Do you remember that run? Yeah, I believe I, I believe he did commentary for one of the clashes. It may have even been Clash Twenty uh, because okay. I think both Bruno and Andre the Giant were part of that show. Right, that was one of Andre's last public appearances. I mean, he looked. You knew how much pain the giant was. He was on right. crutches, and but it was it was it was. I think you're right. I think it was Clash Twenty. I, I thought that was odd because at that point in time, WCW was trying to break that stigma as a, as a Southern wrestling company, uh, and I wonder if that's why they brought Bruno in because the fans down here, as we talked about earlier, he didn't come to the South. You know, he he, he just he just smart enough to realize he wouldn't draw down here. So any of us that knew Bruno down here. We knew him based on after mags or if we were tape traders, you know, I it was, I remember when I saw that, well, that is cool, you know, uh, and I liked it. I knew who he was, uh, but I wasn't sure if some of the other more casual fans in this region of the country knew who Bruno was. Uh, but then again, it would be hard to, cause I mean, God, how many covers of after mags did he make for 30 straight years? Right. Ab- absolutely. And that also uh, brings us, I mean, I'm, I know clash 20 was in the nineties, but Mm-hmm. Really, the tail end of Bruno's WWE career, he was actually in the first two WrestleManias. Uh, the first WrestleMania, yes. he backed David against, uh, I want to say it was Greg Valentine. I believe you're right. No, Yes, I think you're right. And at WrestleMania 2, it was his only in-ring appearance at a WrestleMania because he was part of that battle royal that took place in Chicago that had all the football players in it. Yeah, like Fridge and Steve McMichael and those guys, yeah. And Bruno formally retired in 1987. So that's what uh, almost a 30-year career. His first match was in 59. Right. In 
February of 1987, he faced Nikolai Volkov. And in June of 1987, he faced uh, Butch Reed. Again, this is going by ProFightDB.com. And that would be the natural Butch Reed, that run, right? Right. What a waste of a talent. Anyway, I I digress. (laughs) Okay, he did wrestle one final match in 2005. So that would have made him uh, 60 years old. Wow. Where, in Pittsburgh? It was at Wrestle Reunion 2, April 27th, 2005. And I don't think you'd be surprised at uh, who his opponent was. Larry the Cruncher Zabisco. Exactly, yes. I mean, think about it. I, I, I just, I just, I don't know why I had a lapse of, of, of reason there. But Larry even started calling himself the living legend. Uh, I think, I think when he, when he broke, when he, when he hurt Bruno, because that was always Bruno's moniker. You know, is like Flair's the Nature Boy and Dusty's the American Dream. Bruno was the living legend. So he he idolized the man so much. He even stole this. He, was, he really did steal this gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> But to give you an idea, this final match that Bruno wrestled, for the record, it was a it was a no contest with Larry. But also on this card with Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco are the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers. Okay. Tito Santana, Greg Valentine, Dory Funk Jr. teaming with Mick Foley and Terry Funk. And the main event was the Dudley Boys against Matt Hardy and Rhino. So huh. you, that's a really good mix of... Old school wrestlers versus some of the new school. At that point, yeah, exactly. And and, and believe me, I'm pretty sure the Dudleys growing up in the Northeast were big Bruno fans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, would not surprise me in the light in, in the slightest. John Cena has gone on record many times and said that even even after all his success, Bruno San Martino was still his father's favorite wrestler, not him. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, an Italian from the from Boston area. It makes sense, doesn't it? I was wondering if you'd ever heard the story. I talked earlier about how he was a man's man. Had you ever heard the story that Bruno was very gentlemanly like of talking about? It was in that area where we're talking about right when he retired. Um, and he was backstage somewhere. And I think the Iron Sheik was there. And it was in Pittsburgh. I know where you're going with this. A couple of the Steelers, you know, had shown up and were somewhat disrespectful. And there was five of them, and it was it was Sheiky Baby and and and, and Bruno, and and you know seven walked in, two walked out. You want to guess the two that walked out? That's that's pretty much the the long and the short <laughs> yeah. of that story, <laughs> you know. And these are this is this is the Iron Sheik, you know, when his injuries were starting to catch up with him, and he was in his forties, and Bruno was in his fifties, and these were young NFL players. So what does that tell you about the Iron Sheik right. <laughs> and Bruno San Martino? And it was my understanding it was they were given Sheik issues you know and bruno stepped in as you know to try to be the peacekeeper and you know one thing led to another and bruno bruno would never would never talk about it in detail just say you know i we i think the wording he used was we had a misunderstanding but we, we settled it <laughs> we, we came to an under we came to an agreement or something like that i'm going that is so that is i mean and i think that that is what epitomizes bruno why he was such a draw yes he was a draw because he was an ethnic star uh, yes, he was a draw because he was a big, st- but he he was believable because he was a man's man. That's why you bought into it, you know. And he, we talk about all the time, you know. You put the suit on the guy and they dress up and 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 you can they can go on the talk show. Well, Bruno was one of the first to do that, wasn't he? I mean, he wasn't. I would not say he had the matinee idol good looks of a Buddy Rogers, 
but Bruno cleaned up well. He looked good in a suit. He was articulate. Uh, he was he was uh, you know educated. It, it he was the guy who you could build a company around. You know, uh, and it was part of because of who he was from his childhood of surviving what he survived to being bullied to the hard work it took to become not being bullied. Uh, I think that that just leaked through into his wrestling character. And Bruno is one of those guys who I think is very, very close. The Bruno San Martino that we saw in front of the camera, I think was almost exactly the same Bruno San Martino there was behind the camera. Um, and I don't know if you can say that about every wrestler, but use the top ones are, and he definitely was a top one. Uh, I, I think I, I am happy uh, that whatever the beef was, and there was a long running beef, you know, uh, that, 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 that hatchet was buried and he went into the hall of fame a few years ago for Vince while he was still with us. It should have always been that way. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Kudos to triple H because triple H is the one that's doing all this and convincing his father-in-law to do it. And the first one, when, when, when Hunter had, had cracked that, you know, that shell on Vince jr and said, Hey, we need to let some of these guys in. We need to bury the hatchet. Bruno was the first one he did it with. And my understanding was almost all the direct relations that Bruno had with the company was through Triple H. Triple H like was legitimately calling him and visiting him all the time, prepping him for that. Is that your understanding too? Yeah, I, I my understanding is yeah, Triple H is responsible for a lot of the the mending offenses. Right, right, and and I think you know this is not about Hunter, this is about Bruno, but Hunter's one of us. He grew up a fan, you know, mm-hmm. and he's from the Northeast. He probably was a Bruno San Martino fan growing up. But anyway, I, 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 82 years is, is a long life. Um, and he looked amazing the last time I saw him in public. I mean, he was jacked for a, a 40 year old. Um, he will be missed. Um, I know he was, there's a lot of debate within the, the smart wrestling. Well, he wasn't a great technical wrestler and he wasn't a great talker and all this. No, all he did was sell out houses, people. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing in this business. And he did it with class, and he did it with integrity, much more so than a lot of other of his contemporaries or those that came after him. So Bruno will always have my respect. He will be missed. And like you said, he is always going to be on my list of they have to be in a Hall of Fame if you call yourself a wrestling Hall of Fame. So let me throw this out at at you as we uh, bring our show to a close here. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is your first impression, or what do you think is the greatest accomplishment uh, when when you hear the name Bruno San Martino, surviving Nazi Germany and the invasion <laughs> of Italy. I mean, I'm mean, gonna I mean, I mean, be honest. And I think, and I think, if Bruno was still with us, based on what I've heard him say in public, I think he would say the same thing. I think he's one of those guys that strikes me. If you were to ask him, what do you want on your gravestone? He doesn't care about champion. He would be dedicated father and husband. You know, that's the kind of guy he was. Forget all the athletic accolades. Forget all that. Uh, that was what I think. Family. And just, you know, think about it. He was a wrestler who stayed with the same woman for how many years? Yeah. That doesn't happen 50. a lot in our business. Yeah. That don't happen a lot in our business. I'm one of those statistics. Think about that. Well, what comes to mind when I hear the name Bruno Sammartino, and uh, really surviving Nazi Germany is probably a bigger accomplishment, but to me, Bruno Sammartino should go down, and I think will go down, as nothing less than the greatest WWE champion of all time, at least as far as that, that belt's lineage. Yeah, I, I don't think you can argue that. Um, 
I know times are different, so you're never you're never ever going to see an eight, seven, eight year straight run. But how many different NWA champions were there during his his run? Four. Think Sounds about, about right. Yeah. I mean, when he was champion, when 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 he started, when he when he first beat Buddy, I want to say that would have been, I think, Thez was on one of his runs, and Harley had the belt at one point in that era. And Gene Kaniski had the belt at one point in that era. And I think when he ended, I think when it was around the time Dory Jr. had started his run. So that's, he held the belt. So if you're going to, because you can't compare that time to this time. So compare it to other champions of that era. There were four NWA champions, and he was the only one up Northeast. That's amazing. All right. That's going to wrap it up for volume 18 of Classic Wrestling Memories, devoted to the lifetimes and memories of. The great Bruno Sammartino. Now, we're going to be back sooner rather than later because there actually was another wrestling death that happened this week. It uh, may have even been the same day as Bruno. So we're going to be back very shortly with another tribute show, only this one is going to be for the late, great number one Paul Jones. Which I, I, know, I know a lot about. He was a big star here in the Carolinas. And Train, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, whether it's to talk about Bruno or anything else, where can they get a hold of you? Always on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. And once again, I can be found on Twitter at TWBP Show. That's short for the Wrestling Brethren Podcast Show. Or uh, my geek side is at Geekville Radio on Twitter. We have a Facebook that's in a transition state. Right now it's at, at A1-Wrestling.com. And we also have a website, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, which you can find all the archives of this show. You can find RSS feeds to, to subscribe to on the device of your choice and we also have a facebook comment section so if you have a valid facebook account you can actually get join the conversation and post on each episode however you see fit so for crazy train jonathan bullock this is seth saying so long and we will be back shortly talking number one paul jones Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. You know, if you look back on it, the Bruno San Martino pop was the Road Warrior pop 20 years before the Road Warrior pop. Mm -hmm. And when Bruno would make his comeback, you know, to finally fire up and win the match, first off, again, the crowd would go nuts. And I can't say for sure, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's where Hogan got his Hulk up comeback from. Actually, I think he got it from Lawler dropping the strap, but Lawler probably got it from San Martino. <laughs>